from the Vanguard Voter in Action Media Closet. It's ESG Industries' only weekly woke data podcast featuring me. I'm just an analyst hole today by myself. Damien is busy, I think, in a forest somewhere. Jesse's trying to make us some money. Ari, I think, is hiding under a rock because she has a new baby. In today's snowflake ecosystem called August 30th, 2023, ESG voting sucks. History repeats itself, and you're unqualified, not me. That's right, you're the one who's unqualified. Our show today is being sponsored by S-Gage, your ESG data solutions provider. And Paul will actually be stopping by a little bit later to talk about annual meetings. I think he's talking about annual meetings. Everybody needs to know how meetings work. So Paul's going to talk about that. But first, let's just make this a quick show. I got a little bit to say at the end. Tariq Fancy really pissed me off this week. But let's talk about some stuff. So let's do this thing. First up. Here's the story. Vanguard joins BlackRock in rejecting more ESG proposals from shareholders. Look, this is the second story. BlackRock's story came out last week that their shareholder proposal support for environmental and social proposals plummeted. It dropped enormously. And now they're citing that Vanguard's similarly did. But I did a little bit of actual research into the numbers here. Vanguard reported 359 shareholder proposals. So first of all, just shareholder proposals, not management proposals. Management proposals are over 27,000. It's almost all director votes, and occasionally it's not, but it's almost it's almost 100% director votes. This is just proposals that shareholders put up themselves dealing with just environmental or social issues like, you know, doing a, a, a racial equity audit at your company, setting a net zero target, all those kinds of things. There are 359 proposals that were ENS and they voted for just 2% of them. That's seven, seven actual proposals they said had merit. Now that sounds like a horrible number and it is a horrible number. Seven out of 359 is not great. However, I looked up using proxy monitor data, which covers the Fortune 250, 200, the largest 250 companies. Of the Fortune 250, 250 of the 359 proposals were, were at those companies. So 70%, 70% of ENS proposals are filed at the largest 250 companies in the US. And this is only US companies. This doesn't apply to any other companies. The ENS proposals are, they have different votes. And the anti-woke narrative is only about US companies anyway, for at least for the moment. Of those 250 proposals that we have data on, right, which is 70% of them, fully 51 were filed by anti-woke companies. The National Public Policy Research Center, the... Um, there's a foundation, Stephen Malloy, who's a, a, a anti-abortion activist, um, uses his foundation and then he files individually. Fully 51 were anti-woke. 
So now we're talking about 20% of the proposals at the largest 250 companies in the United States in 2023 were filed by anti-woke activists. My point here is this is pure anti-woke dilution. Now you can do the math and you find that Vanguard still had a pitiful, you know, um, uh, uh, four vote for only like three to four percent of the non-anti-woke environmental and social governance proposals. But lumped in there are 51 anti-woke proposals. It looks like there's a lot more. In fact, when you pull them out and you look at last year, last year in 2022, Vanguard reported 323 proposals that they voted on and they had a 9% for rate. That's 27 votes. So 7 to 27. That's a pretty big drop. But let's be honest, 27 four votes? They could only find 27 things that mattered out of 323 in 2022. And we're celebrating that like they're getting less woke or something. Of those, there were 216 at the Fortune 250. So we're still talking about the vast majority are the 250 largest companies. And 29 of those were anti-woke proposals. So we've doubled the number of anti-woke proposals from roughly 13% of all proposals to just over 20%. So what are we actually talking about here? There's a massive plummeting, but most of the votes against are actually now just anti-woke proposals, which get an average vote for of 3%. Uh, that's the average. The median vote is like less is like 1.2%. So really what we're talking about is a massive dilution of the data. That, look, I'm not going to lie. Vanguard and BlackRock were frauds to begin with. They never really were woke. No one ever thought they were. We made fun of them for years. They never really vote for anything except for a management proposal. They almost uniformly vote against shareholder proposals. And it ebbs and flows with whatever the political whims are of whoever's running it or whatever they're feeling that year. In 2020, Vanguard voted for 7% of the 264 votes. So really what they've done is vote for like 3%. Uh, about nine percent and seven percent, and we're talking like, a, a, oh my God, they they've they've shifted everything they've done. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding? They they haven't shifted everything they've done. We've diluted the number of votes with anti woke proposals, and they basically vote the same exact way, which is for nothing. They vote for basically nothing, if we're honest, over the course of history. So that narrative just should die. I mean, we know that they don't vote woke or anti-woke. They vote with management. And this isn't like, we don't need headlines out of the New York Post talking about rejecting more ESG proposals from shareholders than ever before. Just false. They, they, They never really voted for them in the first place. So congratulations for having no data. Speaking of no data and the anti-woke, Anti-woke snowflake ecosystem actually is expanding. Now you can buy, if you were afraid you couldn't before, mortgages from the anti-woke. This is a headline I saw. Ditch the woke banks revolutionizing mortgage lending for the American homeowner. DTWB, Ditch the Woke Banks, is an extension of a group called Kinfolk Mortgages out of Arizona. Now, normally I wouldn't care about any of this, except that 
their messaging is about how woke banks are pressing your ideology on you and yada, yada, yada. The same sort of messaging. And then I noticed, I wanted to know like, okay, well, how are they giving out mortgages? Are they different from the woke banks that we all suddenly hate, like JP Morgan? Because, you know, everybody's thinking like the ultimate capitalist in the universe who is Jamie Dimon is woke now. Like, like we're all confused that the kneeler in chief is now fully woke. We call him the kneeler in chief after George Floyd as a joke because he went to a Buffalo branch and kneeled like Colin Kaepernick for a nanosecond. Like, it was a joke. Apparently, the anti-woke didn't get the joke. But they are now saying that they're pressing their ideology on you. And this is who they partnered with, with at Kinfolk Mortgages out of Arizona. They partnered with a group called United Wholesale Mortgage, which turns out is a massive publicly traded mortgage broker led by Matt Ishbia, who is the new owner of the Phoenix Suns, the NBA team, the basketball team, the Phoenix Suns. So I wanted to know what makes them not woke so that kinfolk could say they're not woke and they're fighting against woke banks. Well, what makes them not woke actually is true. It's not woke because the company is controlled, according to freefloatanalytics.com data, another sponsor of the show, it's controlled by three brothers. Matt, Jeff, and Justin, they have 77% of the board influence of the company, and they are effectively using the board of the company as a mechanism for Matt to get a basketball team. They put Isaiah Thomas, who is an ex-basketball player, on the board, who also happens to sit on the board of Madison Square Garden, which is owned by the Dolan family, who owns the the New York Knicks, another basketball team. So handshake, handshake graft is definitely not woke. Like putting people on your board, like owning all the control and the power and then circulating people on so that you can get ahead on buying a basketball team. That's not woke. So congratulations to Kinfolk Mortgages for figuring that out. Basically, uh, it's worth mentioning here. I looked at the actual, I read like the details of the mortgages. They're the same mortgages as Chase offers like J Jamie Dimon is offering effectively the same mortgages, but you can get it from a not woke bank that makes sure that their billionaire owner, their billionaire broker partner anyway, can buy a basketball team. Speaking of, well, not basketball teams, but like uh, helping out, I guess, uh, uh, not the not woke. Turns out Alice Cooper now also not woke. Here's the headline. Alice Cooper calls woke ideology laughable, slams trans fad. He's calling trans people a fad. Um, Cooper said, quote, I find it wrong when you've got a six-year-old kid who has no idea. He just wants to play and you're confusing him, telling him, yeah, you're a boy, but you could be a girl if you want to be. That's what Alice Cooper, the ancient rock star, said, meanwhile, if you dig one iota into Alice Cooper's history, Cooper once used baby dolls on stage, impaled them, and held their heads on spikes. Wearing a full face of makeup, he's just lost his makeup endorsement, turns out, because 
he was wearing makeup that he was he had a sponsorship. He once said, quote, I think in the future everyone will be bisexual and everything would be so much simpler then. You'd just make love with anyone you liked and it wouldn't matter what sex they were. Maybe it wouldn't matter what color they were or what age or anything except that you liked them. He said that in 1974. How times have changed when you're an old grumpy man. In uh, failing up news that we called last week, I just had to bring up this headline because this was my prediction from last Friday's show. After the Trump mugshot came out, here's the headline. Trump's fans and critics alike are plastering his mugshot on everything from mugs to T-shirts. And Trump raked in $9.4 million as his campaign sold tens of thousands of mugshot T-shirts and coffee mugs. It's just a, you're a stone's throw away from college dorm rooms. I said it was a win for poster makers everywhere. Uh, in other news, not a glass cliff, apparently. Mark Thompson, CNN has appointed Mark Thompson, the former BBC director general, as their new CEO. According to our data, though, Mark actually has four separate bosses on the board of Warner Brothers, who owns CNN. He has Zasloff, David Zasloff, the CEO of Warner Brothers, who has 19% of the influence of the board. But he also has got to contend with Stephen Moran, who has 14%. Moran is the CEO of a Newhouse family media dictatorship, Advance Media, and they're a major Warner Brothers shareholder. Um, he has to contend with John Malone, who of the Malone family, who owns Liberty Media, which is literally, it's the, it's the biggest bullshit governance show I've ever seen in any company anywhere. If you think that, like, when you think of, like, you know, uh, I don't know, a Russian oligarch sitting on the, on the board of his company, putting his friends on the board, or, like, a Korean chable, where, like, the company, you know, family owns five different companies that own each other. It's, like, a big mess. The Liberty Media Empire is the messiest board I've ever seen anywhere. And they're made even worse by the fact that it's not just that they sit on each other's boards, that they're everywhere. And then finally, Paul Gould, who's a, um, who has 11% of the influence, he is a managing director at Allen & Company, the investment bank that raked in millions from the Warner Brothers Discovery merger. Turns out that their board is 71% interconnected. Seven out of 10 board members, there's 13 board members, but seven out of 10 of them effectively are know each other, like like within two phone calls or less. Women have 11% of board influence and 23% of the representation, a solid negative 12% power gap. Um, the diverse cohort, people of color, and uh, uh, have 38% representation and 20% of the influence, so that's a nice negative 18% power gap. And I've not seen this many places, but... Warner Brothers really has mastered the twofer, which is having a woman who is also a person of color, killing all the birds with one stone. They only have three women. All three are people of color. Really nicely done. Getting all the three, two, three twofers out of the way. Um, here's another story. Uh, I categorize this in history repeats itself. The story is 3M earplug lawsuit. The company is to pay 
Six billion, with the B billion, over claims it sold defective earplugs from the U.S. to the U.S. military. So from apparently from 1999 to 2015, 3M knowingly sold U.S. defective earplugs to the U.S. military that caused hearing loss amongst active military and, you know, ongoing with veterans. The company does not have to admit liability, but they're paying out $6 billion as part of this settlement to cover the costs um, of the, the medical costs now. Here's where history repeats itself. Now, if you listen to this show, you've heard us talk in the past about the Grafty Boeing board that um, greenlit planes that fell out of the sky. We actually mapped them together. We found that two-thirds of them were connected to one guy, Ken Duberstein, who was the head of the nominating committee. They're the ones that made the the okay, the green light. They, they, they pressed the button that said go with the MAX 8 planes. Well, it turns out when you have a bunch of stupid fuck faces on your board who make a decision like that, they tend to make that decision in a lot of different places. They don't just stop at one company. Because in 1999, 3M's board, which ostensibly oversaw the green lighting or at a minimum knew that this was happening because it's a military contract, nine times out of 10, that goes to the board where there's because there are always complications with military contracts. They get a military contract that says we're going to sell earplugs. The board that oversees this includes Roseanne Ridgway, who was on the board of the company from like 1987. So she's already been on the board for 12 years at that point. But from 1985 until she retired in 1989, she was the Assistant Secretary of State for European and Canadian Affairs for the Reagan White House. At the same time, Ken Duberstein was the chief of staff of the Reagan White House from 88 and 89. Ridgway is also on the board at the time with Frank Schrantz, who's the chair emeritus of Boeing, where she is also a board member with Ken Duberstein. Ken Duberstein, Roseanne Ridgway, Frank Schrantz, all on the boards, all on boards together. They all know each other. It's a big love fest, right? Ken Duberstein is the chair of the nominating committee at Boeing of the time. And Ridgway is on the board nominating committee at 3M, where she later picks Ed Liddy to join her in 2000. Ed Liddy gets chosen by Ken Duberstein in Boeing in 2010. Look, the fact is, when you dig a little bit, you realize that boards that make shit decisions don't stop at the one board they're on. They go on to other boards and make shit decisions. So in 1999, the 3M board greenlights something that cost 3M $6 billion two decades later. And in 2011, the Boeing board greenlights a plane that costs them tens of billions of dollars one decade later. And it's one small group of people that are doing it. We know that more than half of the Boeing board was interconnected and half of the 3M board at the time is interconnected and they're interconnected with each other through multiple channels, through lobbying firms and jobs they've had together, through boards. It's one small group of people who crash your planes and make you deaf and then they don't have to pay out later. You do. 
when it come, turns out that they're all liable decades later. Which brings me to my final bit before I allow Paul to come in and tell you something actually of value. And consider this a little bit of a rant or a tirade because I saw this headline. Former BlackRock exec Tariq Fancy, many ESG experts are unqualified. Okay, I worked in ESG for a, more than a decade at this point. I've been working in ESG-ish data with the data for 15 years. I was adjacent to it for a couple years before that, but I know the players, I know the data really, really well. And I cannot figure out for the life of me why we keep asking a guy who worked in ESG for less than two years at BlackRock what he thinks about ESG. He's never seen an ESG data point, to my knowledge. It's nowhere in his resume. But let's take a look. If we're all largely unqualified or underqualified to deal with ESG data, let's take a look at the resume of the person who is saying that we're underqualified to make sure that I live up to some standard. Here is the extensive qualifications of Tariq Fancy. Prior to being the chief investment officer of sustainable investment at BlackRock, which he did from January of 2018 to September of 2019, less than two years, he's the CIO of sustainable investing, all right? He became that. There's a three-year gap prior to taking that, according to his LinkedIn. I don't begrudge anybody a gap. You can go be a dad, go on a trip, go, you know, family issues. Just quit for a little while. Who gives a shit? But prior to that, he, he is the chief restructuring officer of a Singapore-based social media marketing company. He does that for three years. Prior to that, he's building investor strategies at CPP, the Canadian Pension Plan Investment Board. He does that for two years. Before that, he's working at a private equity firm doing turnarounds and special situation investing. Turnarounds. Basically bankrupt companies or near bankrupt companies that you're turning around. He did that for six years. He becomes their youngest partner in 2006. He does that from 2003 to 2009. Prior to that, he's an investment banking analyst at Credit Suisse First Boston and an intern at Merrill Lynch. He and I actually are, graduate the same year from Brown University. That's true, and I didn't know him at Brown at all. Why are we saying that people are underqualified to be ESG experts? Why are we talking about it at all when we both know I am wearing the T-shirt I'm probably as close as you're going to get to an ESG expert given the amount of data that I've seen, and I wouldn't call myself an ESG expert. Being an ESG expert is being an expert in a data set, and that data set is monstrous, and there's no such thing as as someone who can be an expert in all the data it takes to understand ESG. ESG data is data, right? All we're really saying is, can you think about the data differently? That's the expertise that's required. So I don't know what underqualification means if you're talking about ESG experts are underqualified. Are you saying that they don't know how to think about the data? Is that what you're saying? Because guess what? Most people don't know how to think about any data. 
I just, I was, I got in a social media back and forth where somebody was saying like, uh, you know, you make a good point because ESG isn't mature enough in this market and the data points aren't, you know, uh, robust enough. Yeah. Well, guess what? You know what doesn't correlate to outperformance over the long run? They, They were, they were saying that it doesn't correlate to outperformance yet or now or ever or whatever. No, it doesn't correlate. Any traditional financial data set, they don't correlate to outperformance. Nobody has taken a single data set and said, hey, this correlates to outperformance. We should all use it. Because once you all use it, it doesn't work anymore. You don't outperform the market. It is the market. That's the point, right? So really what you're saying is like PE ratio, cash flow, like none of those things over long time horizons have a 90% 90% correlation or 70% correlation, even a 50% correlation with market outperformance. It doesn't, doesn't work. Vanguard actually did the study that, that on that specifically about all those ratios and all sorts of different factors, how not one of them over a, over a multi-decade period correlates. So what are you underqualified to do exactly? The only thing you need to do with ESG data is think differently about markets. That's it. That's all you need to do. I agree with him that ESG experts that are talking are largely blowhards. Like Tariq Fancy, who's blowing hard about what it takes to be an ESG expert. You were the fucking CIO of sustainable investing for less than two years. Prior to that, had no experience in ESG. I was a music major. We... Apparently, we're all underqualified, but there's no such thing as a qualification because it's not a qualification. You just need to look at the data and use it differently. That's it. Stop talking about ESG at all. When anybody should be asking, if you're in the media and you want like an ESG hot take, if you're just looking for Tariq Fancy to say everyone in ESG is an idiot... Can you read his resume and see exactly what his qualifications are for ESG in the first place anyway? Like, everyone is an idiot, period. Like, I guess he'll give you the quote you want, and is that what we're doing? Because if you want to ask people who, like, use the data on a regular basis, like we do here, then there are people who know what they're talking about when you say ESG. And then there's people who know how to talk about it, and maybe that's his point. ESG experts are underqualified. In which case, isn't Tariq Fancy one of those experts? Is he talking about himself? All I know is that this headline definitely triggered me because I've spent enough time in the data to know that no one knows what they're talking about. And I include myself, and I'm wearing the fucking T-shirt. Let's bring in Paul to round us out. I'm going to play Paul in while he walks in. He is... He's calling in from some faraway land. Let's see what you got to say to us. This is the great Paul Hodgson of S-Gage teaching us some things. Bonjour, mes amis. When you listen to this, I will be in Quebec eating croissant, probably, or maybe a delicious French lunch. But so you don't miss me, I've recorded a piece to play in my absence. Hi, Paul Hodgson of S-Gage Statistic of the Week. Um, As promised on the last little Statistic of the Week, we're going to talk about board meetings and the frequency of board meetings. Not really changed a lot over the years from 
2018 to 2023. Maybe a small increase um, in the number of companies with less than eight meetings per year from 55.6 in 2018 to 61.3 in 2023. In terms of the number of meetings more specifically, so eight meetings a year, nine, 10, 11, and 12. Again, very little change in those over the years from 2018 to 2023. For example, those companies with 11 meetings a year went from 4.8 in 2018 to 3.4% in 2023. This is for the Russell 3000. There was a bit of a spike in 2021 in terms of companies with more than 12 meetings per year. I think we might be able to attribute that to COVID-19 and its aftermath. So 20.2%, typically there's only uh, between 11.6 and 7.7% of companies with more than 12 meetings per year. And a corresponding decrease in uh, the companies having less than eight meetings per year, also in 2021 down to 42.2% of the Russell 3000. Now, we can also look at the difference in practice between the Russell 3000 and the S&P 500. And let's just focus on 2023 for that. So the S&P 500, uh, slightly fewer percent, a slightly smaller percentage of companies rather uh, with uh, less than eight meetings per year in the S&P 500, 60.4% compared to 61.3% in the S&P 500. Fewer also companies with 12 or more meetings per year, 6.5% in the S&P 500 compared to 7.7% in the Russell 3000. What you see in the S&P 500 is a more concentrated number of meetings uh, per year in the S&P 500, very focused on either eight or nine meetings per year, 11.9% with eight meetings a year and 8.7% with nine meetings per year. Whereas in the Russell 3000, that's kind of spread across the eight, nine, 10, 11, 12 numbers of meetings per year uh, with a variation between 3.4% um, with 11 meetings per year and 9.4% with eight meetings a year. So there we are, number of board meetings tend to react to external events, certainly and uh, with the S&P 500 consistently having eight or nine meetings per year, that seems to be pretty close to their common practice. So this is Paul Hodgson signing off with S-Gage Statistic of the Week. So first of all, think about that. Eight to nine meetings a year and they make 250 to $400,000. What a gig. If only I could be on the 3M or Boeing board. That's all we got. I'm your analyst whole, Matt Muscardi. We are Free Float. This show is sponsored by S-Gage, your ESG data uh, solutions provider, and by freefloatanalytics.com. Go there, sign up, get a whole bunch of board data. The board data I'm talking about, a lot of it's up there. But you know what? If you want to sponsor this show too, you too can be an underqualified ESG expert and sponsor this show by sending us some money because we want the money and we'll pitch your product because we're real good at it as you can tell we'll be back on friday and damien will be here and so will the rest of the team potentially ari might even be back um but i doubt it until then good bye